Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. We've been talking about all things weight here this month, since it's a topic of much conversation at this time of year. And you may have heard that losing weight can help you manage your PCOS symptoms. But for a whole category of people with PCOS, namely those who have lean PCOS, losing weight is not the answer. So what is? Today, I'm excited to bring you a guest expert in not only all types of PCOS, but also lean PCOS. Martha McKittrick is a registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator with over 25 years of experience. She's been specializing in PCOS for over 20 years. She has been published in peer-reviewed journals and was the nutrition editor for the book, A Patient's Guide to PCOS, Understanding and Reversing Polycystic Ovary Syndrome. She has lectured across the country on PCOS to both healthcare professionals and patients patients with PCOS. She's on the health advisory board for the PCOS challenge and advocates for PCOS annually on Capitol Hill. Martha is passionate about helping people take charge of their PCOS with nutrition and lifestyle. She does not promote a one-size-fits-all plan, and she helps her clients understand their drivers of PCOS while taking an integrative approach focusing on nutrition, sleep, stress, physical activity, and supplements. Let's get started. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hello, welcome Martha. I am so glad that you're here to talk with me today. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? I'm so excited to be here, Melissa. It's great to do this podcast with you. Um, So a little bit about me. I have been a registered dietitian for over 20 years and I've been specializing in PCOS for 20 years. I'm based out of New York City but I have a virtual coaching practice. So I pretty much work with people everywhere and I specialize in PCOS. I also do weight management and IBS and uh, cholesterol. And I'm also a diabetes educator. So I do a lot of work with prediabetes and diabetes. And I'm really passionate about helping people with PCOS understand more about it 
and how to manage it with nutrition and lifestyle. So I have a very integrative approach when I counsel my clients. Awesome. Thank you. I wish we had known each other when I was in New York because I was I was in New York for 19 years and we didn't get to know each other until after I left and became a dietitian. Side note, I'm coming down in April to see a Broadway show. So we'll have to grab oh, lunch. Cool. Grab Give me lunch a I know yeah. we would have had fun in the old days and the old days when I was a little wilder and I think you were a little <laughs> wilder. <laughs> I think you would have had some good times. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. <laughs> oh, anyway, back to the topic at hand. What I wanted to have you come talk about, because, you know, different from maybe some of the PCOS coaches or influencers that you see out there who talk about PCOS on social media and the internet you know, and their their whole approach is I have PCOS and I did this and it worked for me. So everybody should do what I do. And when you're a healthcare practitioner, it's a little bit different because you work with people with all kinds of PCOS, not just, you know, and I think it's important to note that every case of PCOS is different. You know, we kind of alluded to it when I was talking about types, but people have different combinations of root cause drivers and symptoms as they present. And I think one of the most complicated ones to sort of grasp and figure out what to do is when you're dealing with lean PCOS, because there's so much messaging around well, just lose weight with PCOS and that will help you manage your symptoms. But when when you don't have any excess weight to lose, you're kind of stuck, right? So let's back up a little bit and talk about what exactly is lean PCOS. Yeah, and, I mean, it's such a good point. And, you know, I hate to even use the word lean PCOS, you know, as I'm sure you do, but I guess we have to use that term because it, it is out there everywhere on social media. And basically it's it's somebody who is not overweight or obese. It's somebody who is abnormal weight. Now, up to 60% of people with PCOS are obese and then overweight would be even higher. So about 20 to 30% of people with PCOS are not overweight. So it's a small percentage. And I think it's really tricky because they kind of feel like they're the lost group or they're forgotten because a lot of times they have trouble getting diagnosed. They're not taken seriously by their doctor. You know, they'll go in and tell them about the symptoms they're having and the doctor will kind of take a look at them and think, well, you're not the classic PCOS patient. So they're not taken seriously. And I think it's really, really frustrating for, for the patient, but their symptoms can be just as severe as somebody who's not lean. And some of my, I guess I would say most severe cases or people who were most distressed by the diagnosis are people who are very lean. So the body weight doesn't really have anything to do with the severity. Now, as I know, you talked about one of your podcasts about phenotypes, and it is true. If you are overweight, you tend to have more of the metabolic issues, maybe than somebody who's leaner, but just because you're lean doesn't mean you can't have metabolic issues. So I think the biggest problem I see is they're not taken seriously. They're not given any guidance on what to do. 
I've even had patients say to me, their doctor said, well, at least you're not overweight. So it's not so bad, you know, just not really listening to what they're saying, you know, it's, so it's getting taken seriously. Yeah, I think, you know, a few things. Uh, first of all, we, we can all acknowledge that BMI is total BS, but it is used in clinical trials to sort of categorize people and differentiate between, you know, the symptoms that are going on and seeing if there's an association between body size and symptoms and risk factors. I've definitely heard from patients, you know, they go to a doctor and the doctor says, well, you don't look like you have PCOS. You know, PCOS doesn't have a look. And, you know, I do think, you know, there's been some recent research showing that people with the lean type PCOS tend to have more severe reproductive issues from PCOS and less severe metabolic risk factors, but that doesn't mean no metabolic risk factors. And I, you know, I personally have seen patients who are normal weight, normal body weight, diagnosed with sleep apnea and PCOS. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. Yep. Yep. And also, you know, when we use the BMI, we're not taking into account body fat or, you know, abdominal body fat, which is really important. And studies have shown that lean women with PCOS do have more abdominal adiposity than non-PCOS patients of the same weight. So that's a really important factor because when you do have more of the abdominal body fat, there's a greater chance you're insulin resistant. You probably have more inflammation. So it's, it's definitely, it needs to be taken seriously for sure. Yeah. Do you think that lean PCOS is maybe its own type or even a separate category of PCOS? It's, it's tough to say. I just think we need more research because there's so little research done on lean people with PCOS. Just because, I mean, they only make up 20 to 30% of the PCOS patients, so there aren't even that many patients to work with. I mean, of course, we need more research in general. We definitely need more research on people who are lean. So yeah, it could kind of have its own type, I guess. But I think we also have to keep in mind that there's, they still can be insulin resistant. And the statistics are difficult to come up with, you know, as I'm sure you know, is that we don't have a really great way to diagnose insulin resistance. The classic gold standard would be the euglycemic clamp, which we don't use in everyday life. I mean, who wants to sit there and have glucose run in one arm and then insulin run in another arm and sit there and see what the results are? That's only done in some research studies. So the best that we can really do to diagnose insulin resistance would be, I know I use, if somebody has it done, the two are glucose tolerance test with insulin levels, but I find a lot of doctors don't want to do it. You know, that's probably the most accurate way that, that we could use. And then there's the HOMA2, which we can use, but even that isn't that accurate. So the bottom line is there's no really accurate test for insulin resistance. So maybe more people who are lean have more insulin resistance. I mean. Also think about, you know, if somebody's lean and you don't think they're insulin resistant and they get put on metformin and all of a sudden they start to ovulate and then they get pregnant, chances are they were insulin resistant if the metformin worked with help with the ovulation. So it's tricky. Yeah. I've seen those studies too, where when they've done biopsies of ovarian tissue of people with lean PCOS and they're seeing that insulin resistance at a cellular level in the ovaries, but you're not, you know, most of us aren't getting 
ovarian tissue biopsies done regularly, nor would I recommend that, you know? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. So it depends on the method of measurement. I mean, up to 75% of lean people with PCOS can have insulin resistance. So again, we don't know, maybe it's less, maybe it's more. It's just, we don't have a good way to measure it. So I always assume many of my patients have some insulin resistance, especially if they do have like a little extra fat in the belly area. But even if they don't, you know, so let's just say that they do have that two hour glucose tolerance test done with insulin levels and everything looks normal. It still could mean that their bodies are kind of hypersensitive to the insulin. So maybe they're not producing large amounts of insulin after eating carbohydrates, but they're getting like a really quick drop in blood sugar, or they're feeling really like weak an hour or two after eating. That could mean that their cells are just really hypersensitive to the insulin and their blood sugar is tanking pretty quickly. It's estimated that 50% of lean people with PCOS do have this happening, right? That they get, it could also be called reactive hypoglycemia, where they get this rapid drop of their blood sugar after they eat. And this could be due to the hypersensitivity of the cells to insulin. Or it could actually be due to like a low, low level insulin resistance. And this can actually precede insulin resistance. So it could be a sign that something is off in your body. So I think we have to really pay attention to, you know, signs and symptoms and not just looking at the blood work too. Yeah. It's like that meme that, that floats around every so often with the, the picture of the ovaries. And it's like, I'm just overreacting, Um, but but it's true. You know, the ovaries of people with PCOS do overreact to the presence of insulin and they produce more testosterone compared with people who don't have PCOS. You know, I'm glad you brought up the reactive hypoglycemia too, because that is definitely an early warning sign that something's not quite right with your blood sugar balance. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Definitely, and, you, know, you know, with younger people too in their twenties, I tend to see that. Yep. So if you, you know, so if you eat something with carbohydrate, as you should, you should not be not having carbs, especially if you you're lean with PCOS. So you eat a meal, maybe it has a little extra carbs, and then you get that feeling. It could be feeling weak. It could be feeling kind of shaky or lightheaded or really, really cranky or even hangry again an hour to even three hours after eating. It definitely could be due to this going on in your body. You could get a blood test to check for it, but I don't even think people need it. I think you kind of can tell something's not right. So you need to make some changes in your diet in that case. Yeah, absolutely. And I always approach PCOS patients like, you know, assume that you are insulin resistant until proven otherwise. So, you know, eating, eating in a way to balance your blood sugar is not harmful for anyone. So it's always a good place to start. Um, I think one of the, the hardest complications with lean PCOS is how easy it is to misdiagnose you know, either overdiagnosis or underdiagnosis, both of which are not optimal. So what are some of the the common misdiagnoses that you see in lean PCOS? A big one is uh, hypothalamic amenorrhea. That's a really big one. And first of all, some people can have both. I mean, you can have HA and you can also have PCOS. There's definitely 
kind of an overlap there. But it can present kind of similar. You know, it can present as having irregular periods. You could even have polycystic ovaries, which you could have in uh, hypoplemic amenorrhea. And generally with PCOS, there are the elevated levels of androgens or the clinical signs of it. But some people with PCOS don't have that. So it can be really tricky to really diagnose. So that's why I think you need to go to somebody who definitely specializes in PCOS and really get, get a good workup and, and get the right diagnosis. Because the problem is, is if you think you've been told you have PCOS, but you could fit this profile of having either. And then, so what do you do? You go online and you read, you know, you should eat less carbs and you should do more exercise. So that's what you start to do. And what happens that makes the hypothalamic amenorrhea worse because that's one of the main signs that you have HA is, you know, people who may not be eating enough or, and, or who are over-exercising. So that's why you really need to make sure that, that you get a, a diagnosis. Yeah, I have definitely seen that, especially because the hypothalamic amenorrhea tends to happen in women who are maybe type A personalities, perfectionists. And so they do all the research on PCOS and they're like, okay, I'm supposed to cut out gluten and dairy and carbs and sugar. And so they're eating this low carb diet and then they're actually making their symptoms worse because they're worsening those adrenal hormones, which are a big driver in lean PCOS. And I've seen so many people come to me, you know, not sleeping well or they're irritable all the time. And they're just like, they just don't feel like you're like themselves. You know, can you talk about some of those signs that someone might not be eating enough or they might not be eating enough carbs? Well, for, for some people, not eating enough carbs actually acts as a stressor in the body. Not for everybody, but for some, especially the, the lean PCOS. So when your body goes under kind of chronic stress mode, then you can secrete more cortisol. Uh, it can affect your reproductive hormones. Your periods get even more irregular. It can cause hair loss, uh, definitely affects your sleep. It can even cause you to gain a little bit of weight, like in the belly area due to the cortisol, which can cause some weight gain, but it, it can have a huge, huge impact. And stress is one of the biggest things I work with my clients because I mean, I, I've yet to meet a person where stress has a positive effect on their PCOS, right? And like stress affects everybody's PCOS in a negative way, but especially if you have the PCOS where you have the elevated levels of the adrenal androgens, like the DHEA and the DHEAS, which is more common in lean women with PCOS. So it definitely is more common there. And as I'm sure you've talked about in other podcasts, stress can drive that and can make it even worse. I don't think we actually know exactly what causes the elevated levels of the DHEA and DHEAS. There's lots of theories on it, but what we do know is if you are under chronic stress, that will probably make them get even higher. And then that can turn into testosterone and that can make all the symptoms worse. So there's a lot of very vicious cycles going on with, with this condition. Yeah, I think, you know, when we talk about stress, I think most people think that we're just talking about psychological stress, which obviously everyone has been under, you know, sort of unprecedented levels of stress over the last couple of years. But it's more than that, you know, it's whatever your body interprets to be stressful. So 
Skipping a meal can be stressful. Not getting enough sleep can be stressful. Having a blood sugar spike and then having it crash can be stressful to your body. So it's really important to recognize that. And I think, you know, also the fact that you mentioned that you can have both PCOS and hypothalamic amenorrhea. Like, and I, I see it pretty often because what happens is you're going on this super restrictive diet or you're exer- over-exercising, under-eating, and you're throwing yourself into a state of hypothalamic amenorrhea. And then it's like those things that that PCOS normally responds to, it doesn't respond to because you've got this other stress-driven situation going on. Exactly. And I think that's such a good point that you said. We think we tend to think of stress as like a mental stress or money stress or relationship stress, but the body perceives stress as, like you said, eating too few calories or not getting enough sleep. Maybe for some people having too much caffeine, like there's all different things that can cause stress on the body. And that just makes everything so much worse in your body. It just worsens all your symptoms. So that's one of the biggest things I focus on. And it's interesting how certain things like uh, yoga, for example, which has been shown to kind of help calm the whole HPA and HPO axis, mainly HPA. It's been proven to kind of calm it down. And I've had some clients who've had really great success in, in improving their symptoms because they started to do yoga or meditation or even acupuncture. There's some really great studies on how it's calming down that whole HPA axis. So it's highly, highly involved with PCOS. I would say, especially for the lean uh, patients with PCOS. Yeah, I think, um, you know, especially when I'm working with someone who weight loss is not really a concern for them, but they're working out five or six days a week, you know, it's often much more beneficial to not work out five or six days a week, cut that to three or four days a week, and on the alternate days, do something like restorative yoga or a walking meditation or, you know, being outside in nature or something, because it has that soothing effect on the nervous system where continuing to over-exercise for what your body needs is actually making things worse for you. Totally. And I think it's, you know, it's difficult for some people, especially said like the type A's who they want to work out seven days a week. And it's like painful them, painful for them to only work out five days a week. So it's kind of like, you know, I have to kind of battle with them and say, you know, your goal is this week to not work out seven days a week. It's got to be five days a week. And then just really pushing the different types of exercise. Like I'm a huge, huge fan of weight training for everybody with PCOS, but especially for lean people with PCOS. And it's interesting because a lot of people are like, they're cardio bunnies and they feel like they need to get on the cardio machines, you know, maybe to see the calories that they burned or it's been brainwashed. You have to burn more calories or exercise more, but weight training has huge benefits for PCOS and a really great review of studies that just came out in 2020. They took tons of studies on exercise and PCOS. And they said that weight training had the most powerful benefit of decreasing androgens for PCOS, which is fascinating actually. So that is really important because it helps to decrease androgens. And also um, it can improve insulin resistance as well. Because as, as we know, when you build up the muscle, the muscle is the main tissue that kind of sucks the glucose in. And you don't need to make insulin to suck the glucose into the muscles. So by doing the, um, the aerobic exercise, you will uh, improve insulin resistance. 
but the weight training, it builds the muscle and then that gives you more muscle to suck the glucose in. So weight training, I would say would be really important for PCOS. And yoga, like you said, adding that in, it would be important. And you can do cardio. Like you don't have to be afraid to do cardio. Absolutely fine. Cardio has a lot of health benefits. I think it's just not overdoing the cardio is the big thing. You don't need to do cardio four or five times a week. I think three times a week is probably fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, all the research on PCOS shows that PCOS symptoms and markers improve with a weight loss of five to 10% of body weight. So when you're someone who doesn't have five or 10% of your body weight to lose, what are you supposed to do? Well, I mean, studies have also shown that weight training improves symptoms. I don't know that they have the, the, how much, by what percent it actually improves it. But when you weight training, when you weight train, you will lower your androgens, including your DHEAS, as well as testosterone. You will improve insulin resistance. You can lower blood glucose. So just that in itself shows that it can help. And studies have shown when you do yoga or meditation, that can actually also help to lower androgens. So it doesn't have to be weight loss. There are definitely other ways that you can improve your symptoms. And um, I think a great way is to get your blood work done. And you can use your blood work as, as kind of a benchmark. So you get your initial blood work done, and then you embark on this kind of healthy lifestyle type of healthy eating type of a program, and then get your blood work rechecked. And you know, chances are you will see an improvement in a lot of the labs, including your androgens, and maybe even your hemoglobin A1C or, or your insulin. Yeah, I always always tell my my lean folks with PCOS to to manage stress like it's their job <laughs> because most of the time the adrenals are making things worse and those studies that show the benefits with weight loss I always question you know was it the weight loss itself or was it the habits that led to the weight loss that actually caused the improvements because when someone is actively trying to lose weight they're usually exercising more, they're usually eating more fruits and vegetables, they're eating less junk, you know, all of those things can contribute to making PCOS symptoms better. So it's not necessarily just the weight itself that's I causing. I mean, that's such a good point. And there have been studies that show that regular exercise also, and even cardio in overweight people, greatly improve androgens and insulin resistance and there was no, no weight loss occurred, right? So that just shows that it wasn't the weight loss for those studies. It was the, it was the exercise improving the insulin resistance and lowering the androgen. So yeah, I mean, if somebody's overweight, I, I definitely encourage weight loss, but not initially, but when they're lean, I just explained, there are so many other things that, you know, that can help. And also, you know, what are their goals? You know, maybe they want to have more energy or maybe you know, they want to decrease their symptoms. They want to have regular ovulation and all these things that we're talking about can help them meet their goals. So it's not just about the weight. I am so glad I have moved on from that place in my late teens and early twenties where I exercise, you know, that definitely a cardio bunny, you know, trying to, trying to shrink my body at that point. But these days I am a hundred percent in it for the energy boost and mood boost. Like, you know, I know I'm going to feel better in the afternoon if I take the time to get it done. Um, I know you, we've talked a lot this year about you being trapped 
in your studio apartment in New York City like, all this time. In cage, cage. <laughs> I see you out there in the middle of the streets of New York jumping rope because you're going so insane in your box. In my box, yeah, yeah. No, it's funny because like you, I used to be a cardio bunny. I used to teach aerobics high impact aerobics where you would hire a DJ to speed your music up to like 180 beats a minute. So you'd be flying your arms around and to this day I'm paying for it. Cause I have literally torn, torn muscles like all in my body due to that when I was younger. So there's no benefits to doing that when you get older. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely not. We, I definitely grew up having the Jane Fonda videos at home, my mom doing them in the living room. Yeah. That, that yeah. kind of thing. In the leotard with the leg warmers. Did you, did you, yeah, yeah. I, hey, I, I used to go to a local gym in New York City and I would wear the thong and the leg warmers. That's <laughs> what we did. I can't even believe I used to do that, but I did. <laughs> I would literally pay to see pictures of that. That is hilarious. <laughs> Actually, I'll look around. <laughs> Oh, so, you know, it. I don't want to downplay the effects that weight can have on PCOS because they're, you know, talking about those vicious cycles that are happening, you know, there's more inflammation and excess body fat itself causes inflammation and that in turn makes your PCOS symptoms worse. So there's just a lot of that going on and, you know, the belly fat itself makes symptoms worse and increases inflammation. And it's just, you know, this, this horrible spiral that's happening. So if we isn't one of the drivers for people with lean PCOS. What are the more common root causes or drivers that you see? And I'm so glad that you talk about drivers and root causes because I think one of our pet peeves, I know you feel the same, is when you read online about the types of PCOS. You know, um, I know you talked about that in one of your podcasts, but I think it's very, very confusing to people that you have to fit into one of these types, like it's a box. So which box am I, you know, am I the stress type? Am I this type? I see, I mean, in, I guess if I'm generalizing, I think stress is a major driver for, for many uh, people with PCOS, especially people who are lean, but it could be of any body weight. Inflammation is also one, because I have a lot of clients who have, you know, skin issues. And gut is, is another driver, I think is really a big one, but it's, it's really hard to say if, it, if it's more in lean versus not lean. Cause I think they occur with everybody. So it's really hard to pick one out. I guess I would have to say stress probably is one of the biggest drivers I see with, with lean PCOS, but uh, it could definitely be all four, you know, could some insulin resistance, some inflammation, some gut, and then some stress. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I see the same. I would say the one the one difference I see is I, I do see less clinical insulin resistance in lean yes. type. It's mostly yes. always almost entirely 100% adrenal, you know, and, and honestly, lean PCOS is the only time I do see people who sometimes only fit in one of the boxes where it's 100% adrenal. But even so, the vast majority of the lean patients that I work with are a combination of high adrenal androgens, inflammation, which is often being caused by gut issues. Um, so it's just, it's all kind of tangled up. I would say the one main difference is I'm sometimes not seeing clinical insulin resistance in right. lean patients. But right. that could also be a little bit in that we don't have a great test to pick up very low level insulin resistance, right? If somebody's very insulin resistant, it will show up. 
it's tricky, but I agree with what you said earlier. I think treating everybody like they have some, a little insulin resistance because I mean, what's the downside to eating balanced meals, right? Eating healthy types of carbohydrates, eating balanced meals. It's not like, oh, I'm not insulin resistant. So I'm going to go load up on donuts and tons of massive New York City bagels. So, I mean, I think everybody should be eating that way for the most part anyway. Oh, even me. I mean, my husband is is a healthy, athletic guy. And, you know, I see him grab a banana on his way out the door every morning. And I'm like, wait, take the peanut butter, grab a cheese stick, like don't eat a banana by itself. You know, it really affects everyone. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of people without PCOS have actually told me they they really love my cookbook because that's what it is. It's blood sugar balancing anti-inflammatory. Like that's not a bad way to eat for most people, you know? And I don't have PCOS. A lot of people ask me that, you know, why are you so interested in it? I don't have it, but I definitely get low blood sugar if I just eat carbohydrates or if I go too long without eating. I'm super, super sensitive to caffeine. I have to do half calf or I start getting like my, my cortisol must be just going crazy because I feel like I need to eat. I get super irritable. So yeah, it's, I think everybody can benefit from eating that way. Yeah. Let's circle back to that for a sec because I am, you know, we didn't really talk about that at the beginning, but how did you end up focusing on so much on PCOS? Yeah, it's an interesting story. So I was, I was much younger but it was, it was about 20 years ago. I was working for WebMD. I was running one of their message boards. And then one, a patient on the board, I guess this is before HIPAA, <laughs> she was trying to lose weight on the message board and uh, she couldn't lose weight. And I said, do you have any medical stuff going on? She said she had PCOS. And I'd worked for a doctor at uh, Cornell in Manhattan who specialized in weight loss. I remember him saying something about PCOS with insulin resistance. So I did some research on it. I talked to him. And he said they tend to be ins- insulin resistant. So we changed her diet via the message board and she ate more fat and uh, she cut down the carbs. She was on a very low fat diet. Long story short, she was able to feel better and lose weight and, and accomplish a lot of good things with my guidance. So she actually ended up becoming a private client. And then she introduced me to Dr. Walter Futterwhite, who was like one of the piece to gurus from many years ago in Manhattan and Mount Sinai. I started consulting with him and I got involved with lecturing across the country. Really, it was really cool. We were like in San Diego. We were everywhere lecturing with this organization for PCOS. And I just got super passionate about it because I love mysteries. You know, I love medical. I love understanding medical things. And this was just this huge group of people who were getting no help. And the clients I had, you know, they really had a lot of success, but nobody was helping them. And it just, I couldn't understand it. Nobody knew anything about it. So I actually ended up writing two chapters in that doctor's book, Dr. Walter Futterway. This was in 2004. So it's kind of embarrassing now when I look at what I wrote in the book, what my recommendations were. It's actually very embarrassing now, but it was what, 16, 17 years ago. But we were very obsessed with, uh, insulin resistance, low carb. There was no mention about inflammation or gut health or managing stress. It was just exercise and eat low carb. And I even had a lot of like artificial sweetener recommendations in the book. So my recommendations have changed dramatically, but we didn't know anything back then. And I tried to submit an article to a peer reviewed nutrition journal. I won't say the name (laughs) on insulin resistance and PCOS. And it got denied because they said 
PCOS has nothing to do with insulin resistance. It's a gynecological condition. And they cut out, they photographed a, a page from a medical book from like 1940 that said that's what it was. And they sent it to me and they said, what are you talking about? This isn't true. So I got the doctor to kind of write a rebuttal. So it actually was published. And this was in 2004, which is crazy. So we've come a long way. I mean, we have a long way to go with needing more research, but at least we have come a long way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to note, and especially because you've been in the industry for so long, you know, people get mad at us as dietitians and as nutrition experts because the the science changes, you know, as we yes. learn, as we learn more about something. A good dietitian, you know, takes that knowledge and incorporates it into their clinical work, you know, constantly the the subject of eggs come up, you know, it's like, well, you told us eggs were bad for us and now you're saying eggs are good for us. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, <laughs> you know, having to stay open-minded and, you know, first of all, keeping up with the research and seeing what's coming out. I mean, we didn't know about artificial sweeteners effects on the gut microbiome Absolutely. back then. Yeah. Um, I don't even know, even in 2004, I don't think there were that many studies on the microbiome in general. Now there's thousands and thousands of studies. So it's just remaining flexible. And I always say like, like I will bite my tongue if it comes out that gluten is the cause of PCOS. Like I will bite my tongue. I will, I will change my programs, yep. you know, and yep. I, I will humbly eat my pie and yep. say, I'm with you. Yep. You know, yep. you were right. But like right now there's literally no studies and and I get good clinical results without my patients cutting it. So, you know, it's just part of part of remaining a good practitioner is staying open-minded and staying on top of emerging research. Yeah. And like you said, being humble, like acknowledging if something that we're saying today, it gets changed by some new studies, just acknowledging this is this is what the studies show. And I think there's so many practitioners or coaches on social media that don't do that. And they might be promoting something because it worked for them, which in a way it's probably better that I don't have PCOS because I'm super open-minded. Let's just say I did and gluten and dairy work for me. I might be more likely to recommend it for others, but I'm, I'm just looking at what's worked for my patients over the past 20 years and what research does say. So like you, that's not what I recommend, but let's explore. Maybe it's not good for you. Let's explore and see, but it's not a standard recommendation. Yeah, I think one of the ways that you can identify a good practitioner is someone who's willing to say, well, we we don't know, you know, we, we, you know, and we say that now we don't know what causes PCOS. There are some hypotheses, some are more promising than others. It's likely multifactorial, but the bottom line is we don't know. And you know, the other, the other hallmark to identifying a good practitioner is it depends, <laughs> you know. Oh, I feel like I need, I should have that stamp, like a tattoo on my forehead. Like it depends. I feel like I'm always saying it depends. Yeah. Yeah. We don't treat people for their condition. We treat people period, you exactly. know, and exactly. every, every person's different. 
Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to let you know about a new program I'm starting on February 1st. If you're like most people, you probably spent January trying to follow one diet plan or another, whether you did a 30-day clean eating plan, keto, one of those online diets running commercials every five minutes this time of year, or just trying to avoid sugar or carbs. And if you're also like many people, those resolutions didn't quite last through the month. So maybe it's time to try something different. The PCOS Root Cause Roadmap is my proven and proprietary six-step method for PCOS success, and it's always open for enrollment. But if you enroll at any other time of the year, you are pretty much on your own as you're going through the course. I wanted to give you the opportunity to go through it with more support if you feel like you need that. So starting February 1st for four weeks, we'll be doing the course live. We will go through insulin resistance, inflammation, gut imbalances, and hormone imbalances together as a group with twice weekly open office hours with me via Zoom to get your questions answered and help you customize the recommendations in the course for yourself. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash RCR live that's the letters R-C-R-L-I-V-E, to sign up now. And if you're a current or former student in the course and you're looking to recommit, stay tuned for an email from me and a post in the Facebook group to let you know how to join in. For everyone else, head on over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash R-C-R live to sign up now. Back to the episode. So what are some of the nutritional concerns of lean people with PCOS? What do you focus on? Well, I would want to, you know, make sure their diets are adequate. Uh, Again, I see people taking their carbohydrates too low for no reason. So I would definitely look at that. I would want to make sure that they're focusing on what they can add into their diet versus the weight they should supposedly, supposedly cut out. I think a lot of people feel all about restriction. But, you know, let's add in, you know, foods that have antioxidants because studies have shown there are higher levels of oxidative stress with PCOS. So let's add in some really nutrient rich foods, um, not going too long without eating, paying attention to blood sugar dips. And it's just really eating a balanced diet. I don't think it's that different for lean versus not lean. Those are the basic tips that I would kind of look at. We paying attention to how your body feels with caffeine, but an interesting study that I know you love, Melissa, because I've seen you quote it other at times is that, you know, so somebody was lean with PCOS, they might say, well, what, what else can I do? Like, you know, I don't need to lose weight. So what can I do? And one of my favorite studies, it shows that the timing of your meals can help you in many different ways. So the study that they did with 60 lean women with PCOS, they were put into two groups they both had 1800 calories for three months. And then some one group had a really large breakfast. It was almost a thousand calories and a really small dinner, which was only 190 calories. And the other group had a really small breakfast and they had a, a large dinner, which is, I think, how the, the kind of average person eats that way, really. They have a large dinner, a small breakfast. Uh, but after the three months, the people who ate the large breakfast had a 50% decrease in insulin resistance a 50% decrease in testosterone and a 50% increase in ovulation. 
that so that's just by changing the way you eat. Now, I think this study was a bit absurd and that I don't know anybody who's going to eat a thousand calories. And I looked up what that meal was. Did you ever look that up in the studies, like what it consisted of? No, I didn't. I know the numbers of the breakfast and the dinner, but I, I know what was the specific foods they were eating. That healthy or that appealing. There might have been like a cup of orange juice and like a bowl of cereal and some toast. It was a kind of a bizarre meal. Um, it wasn't like the kind of meal I know we would recommend. But anyway, the didn't didn't matter. The point of the study was the timing, and they were standardized that the both groups had got the same meals. So, but anyway, so that's good news. If you have if you're lean with PCOS, just by changing the time of the day that you eat. And you don't have to eat a thousand calories for breakfast. I think the moral of the story is eat more during the day and don't skimp all day long and then eat a massive dinner. Just that in itself can help. Yeah, I agree. The, my main takeaway from the study is a couple of things. I think, you know, eating the bulk of your calories earlier in the day because you're metabolically more ready to handle that. And my other takeaway is something they don't really talk about in the study, but I know the whole concept of intermittent fasting is something that people ask all the time about. And this study makes me think people are doing it wrong. You know, instead of skipping breakfast and not eating your first meal until noon, maybe try having a small dinner at six and then going to bed and waking up the next morning and eating breakfast as soon as you get up. You know, it's it's amazing what a difference just shifting the timing can do. It, it really, it's fascinating. The studies they're doing with shift workers, you know, for people, unfortunately, do their jobs, they have to eat in the middle of the night, how there are higher rates of obesity, diabetes, cancer, everything. But yeah, just shifting, just eating a little bit more during the day. And I think this whole intermittent fasting kind of, uh, phase or craze, it's it's brainwashing people. And maybe for some people, there are health benefits. I mean, I'm not saying that's not true, but I, I do like what you said, Melissa, about just trying to shift meat more earlier on in the day and less as the day goes on. Yeah. I mean, you know, from all the research I've done on intermittent fasting so far, it's not for weight loss. It, it doesn't, it consistently shows it's not any better than a calorie restricted diet for weight loss. You know, the benefits are really more for longevity and, you know, cellular stuff that happens, which, you know, again, I always say if I meet a person who's not stressed, doesn't have hormone issues, doesn't have thyroid issues, sure, try intermittent fasting, but I have not yet met that woman. So if if you meet her, send her my way, and I'm happy to talk about intermittent fasting. Right, right, right. Like, hey, we're open-minded, right? If all of a sudden studies show, hey, that's cool, but so far we have not seen that. And I mean, are there even any studies done in in women of reproductive age? You know, I haven't seen any. No, and and the animal studies that exist show negative impacts, you know, like shrinking. Like the shrunken shrinking ovaries. ovaries yeah. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Don't recommend it in, in reproductive aged women, for sure. Our, our hormones are just so sensitive to scarcity, you know? If you want to do some light time restricted eating, I think when we use the word intermittent fasting, we have to clarify because there are multiple types of intermittent fasting. Like if you want to do some light time restricted eating and maybe, you know, eat within a nine hour window or something, like I'd be okay with that. But the strict six hour window or the five and two or the, the total fast in one day and eat in the next day at that. Absolutely not. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's important to clarify that I don't consider a 12 hour break from eating a fast. Right, right. <laughs> you know, we're, we are, there are, is some research about circadian rhythm disturbance in people with PCOS and that potentially being one of the, one of the root causes of PCOS itself. And I think, you know, the more we can eat, when the sun comes up and stop eating when the sun comes down, the more aligned with circadian rhythm will, will be. Exactly. Yeah. So what are some lifestyle considerations for people with lean PCOS, you know, exercise, sleep, stress? Do you talk about environmental toxins at all or environmental toxicants? I do. I kind of ease my way into that one slowly. <laughs> I don't want to start out with that one because if you want anxiety, let's talk about, let's start with environmental toxins. Uh, but absolutely, I start with the basics and I kind of get a base on where the person is and most people are very stressed out. Out and they're working a lot or they're just stressed. So I usually start with stress and sleep. I talk a lot about uh, sleep hygiene, getting adequate sleep and just letting people see, you know, when you don't get enough sleep, what are the repercussions? And I'm a huge fan of journaling where, you know, they write down how much sleep they got and the time they went to bed and what they ate and how their body feels and their mood and all that stuff. And so you can see a clear pattern. If you don't get enough sleep, the next day you want more caffeine you have a stronger craving for carbohydrates and you don't have the energy to work out and you feel more stressed. So, so really starting with sleep and stress is what I start with. Then the movement, finding a movement that's good for your body, what makes you feel good, not paying attention to all those little quizzes where if you have the stress type of piece, but you can't do this exercise, if you have the inflammatory, you can't do that type, listen to your body ideally incorporate some weight training and some cardio and some yoga in the ideal program and just getting up and moving your body. That helps too. And then of course, nutrition, um, kind of in a nutshell is you do not need to be on a very low carbohydrate diet, but work on balancing your blood sugar with protein, fat, fiber, healthy carb, focus on what you can add into your diet with anti-rich antioxidants, rich foods, high fiber foods, eating more of your calories earlier on in the day just paying attention to how your body feels with different kinds of meals and just finding what, what makes you feel good. So that's kind of what I, I basically start with. And then I will discuss endocrine disruptors, starting with the real basics, you know, maybe the, the food storage containers or the cookware. I'd start with that and then maybe take it further as, uh, as I can with, you know, what you put on your skin, whether it's lotions and all that. But but be, being kind of careful with that because that's a very overwhelming topic. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you start with sleep because it's so true. If you're not getting enough sleep, you're not going to have the energy to even do the exercise. So, okay. you know, it's one of the foundational principles in order to feel good and have energy. You need rest and fuel <laughs> in order to do that. Yeah, um, look, I can sleep because I go to a sleep doctor in Manhattan, because I have sleep issues I have had for many, many years. And so I'm always, you know, I'm embarrassed when I email my clients at one in the morning, <laughs> like I shouldn't be doing that, but I'm always working on it myself and I see the repercussions. So I'm really, really, you know, in tune with that with my clients. Yeah. Let me change your life right now because Google <laughs> has this little button you can click that says schedule send. So oh. 
If you're if you're responding to an email at 4:30 in the morning, you can schedule a send for 9:02. Not that I do that. And then people don't think that you're insane. Really? Good to know. Thank you. <laughs> I keep I keep you current with the tech stuff, right? Thank you. Thank you. So funny story about the environmental toxins. So, you know, I do talk about that with my patients and in my course and, you know, because hormone disruptors are absolutely a factor and they have found higher levels of hormone disruptors in people with PCOS compared to people without PCOS. So I kind of, you know, would talk about it in the lifestyle section of each module of my course, you know, talk about exercise, sleep, stress, environmental toxins. And what happened was people were getting so lost in the weeds on the environmental toxins. It's like, you know, they weren't even focusing on what to eat or what to do. They were like, where can I buy clean cookware? And I was like, I don't want you to focus on that right now. Just focus on making sure you're eating enough protein, like get those basics down. So I I actually, in, in one of the revisions of my course, I ended up moving it to the end of the course. So it's sort of like, advanced tips and tricks, like what what to focus on once you've mastered the basics, because it really is complicated. And, you know, I think like you, I recommend prioritizing things that go in your mouth or touch your skin, anything that can be absorbed in your body. Plastic in the kitchen alone is going to make a huge difference. And I was guilty of it. I mean, before I learned about this, I'm embarrassed. I had this nonstick pan that was probably 15 years old and all the surface was scratched off and I was still using it. And then when I learned about all this, I was just like, oh my goodness. But it's starting really slow with that stuff because it's very overwhelming. Yeah, I think I was a victim of uh, the greenwashing. So I would buy drugstore stuff that was like Neutrogena Naturals or like Avena Naturals. And I didn't know that that was still full of crap, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. Or buying plastic, you know, that says BPA free. And a lot of people don't understand that it's, if they have other chemicals that are just as bad as BPA, they've added in there. So it's very tricky. Yeah. So I know, you know, like me, you do not believe in a one size fits all diet for PCOS or anybody really. Can you talk a little bit about that and why we need to individualize and personalize? Well, it just doesn't even make sense that, that people would say there's a one size fits all approach because we have different genes. We have different hormone imbalances. Some people have more inflammation than others. Some people have more insulin resistance than others. Some people have higher levels of adrenal androgens than others. We have different activity levels. We have different food preferences, different availability of food. You know, tell everybody you have to get organic or wild salmon or, or all your vegetables have to be organic is just so unfair to people who don't have access to that, those kind of foods. But I think most importantly of all is the whole gut microbiome issue. And that is that the gut microbiome and circadian rhythms are two areas I'm like obsessed with. The gut microbiome is so fascinating and we all metabolize food differently. We all have our own individual gut microbiomes. And how can we possibly say everybody needs to be on the same diet if we all have different gut microbiomes? I love the study that came out of, I think it was the Weizmann Institute of Science maybe about four years ago where 
they had uh, about 800 people and they checked their gut microbiomes, they checked their genes, they wore continuous glucose monitors, and they were given diets that had the same amount of carbohydrates in them and the same types of food. And they saw huge fluctuations in people's blood sugar responses when they, let's just say a banana, for example, when some people ate a banana, their blood sugar hardly moved. When other people had skyrocketed up to 160. And they were able to figure out like why this huge change in these people. And they also took into account their body weight and their activity levels, which turns out it had to do with their gut microbiome. So, you know, people, we just metabolize food differently. So there, there's no way there could be a one size fits all approach. Yeah. I think there's something to, you know, cultural background and what our people ate throughout the yeah. centuries. You know, yeah. I think, yeah. you know, with my family being, Italian, I, I tend to think that I re respond a little bit more favorably to pasta than someone who maybe, you know, pasta isn't in their blood. Right. Um, right. You know, right. 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 Maybe um, not, which I can probably metabolize beer very well. <laughs> potatoes. You probably do great <laughs> on potatoes. Right. Yeah. So you've actually been working, and we've talked a little bit about this throughout the episode, but, you know, you've been working with people with PCOS for over 20 years now. So you hinted at some of the, some of the ways the recommendations have shifted throughout the years, but how have other things changed in that time, you know, from awareness to diagnosis to the recommendations that we're making for PCOS? I think there's a, I mean, there's definitely a lot more awareness. You know, you even read the statistics, some of the older journals will say five to seven percent of people have PCOS. And now you hear any you hear up to 20% of people. Mm -hmm. I've even read a statistic up to 25%. So maybe we're even overdiagnosing sometimes. But so I think there's definitely more awareness because because more people are getting diagnosed. But unfortunately I I still think the knowledge base from a lot of physicians it's just not there. I mean, some are, some are great, you know, that they, they can diagnose, they have great recommendations, they can talk about supplements, but some just are still, they're not getting it. They're not running the right kind of tests. If you're lean, they don't even look at you and say, oh yeah, you might've pieced to us. So we have a long way to go. So I, I definitely think there's an improvement. Um, more people are getting diagnosed, but the big thing is we need more money for research and funding. And I am on the health advisory board of the Peace to Us Challenge. And they are this huge nonprofit organization that really advocates for PCOS. And the work they do is just unbelievable. And they got September to be PCOS Awareness Month. They're always down at Congress, you know, trying to advocate for more money. And they've, they've made a huge impact. So we need more money for funding. And until there's more money for funding, for education and research and all that, it's not going to really go, go places. But we're getting there in part thanks to organizations like them. Recommendations are changing a little bit. I still think too many physicians just jump to it has to be the birth control pill. And I think I think that's unfortunately because it is in the standards of care guidelines that that's one of the first line treatments of PCOS. And for some people, it birth control pill is great. You know, I've had some clients, they feel fantastic on the pill, it helps their symptoms, and that's fine. But I think we also have to understand it doesn't like cure PCOS and we still need to work at the root causes. Yeah, I love that you brought up the PCOS challenge because this episode should come out in enough time before PCOS Advocacy Day, which is, do you know offhand it's March something? It's, I believe it's March 3rd, I believe. 
It's okay. yeah, I believe it's the third. And I've gone the past two, actually past three years, and last year it was virtual. But I think if anybody, especially if you live in the Washington D.C. area, hopefully this year it's going to be in person. <laughs> I hope you know, pray. But it's, it's such a fantastic opportunity if you can go in person because you actually go to Capitol Hill and you you meet with uh, congressmen and women and you basically share your story about you know your PCOS and how it's affected your life and that we're asking for more funding for awareness and it's so emotionally you know usually you will go with like a healthcare provider like myself or Melissa or somebody else maybe a doctor and then you go as a patient you share your story it's it's an amazing bonding experience yeah i got to participate last year in the virtual one and i was actually one of the only people in my state because i'm a very small state so we were kind of in a New England contingent. Um, so I also jumped into a couple of the main meetings as well as New Hampshire. Um, but it's a super inspirational day. It's great to take part of. And I think it's important definitely for us as healthcare practitioners. I really value being able to give back in that way. But for people with PCOS as well, you know, you get to see maybe some celebrities who are there who talk openly about yeah. their PCOS. Yeah, from Teen Mom was there. Lauren. Lauren Ash. Ash yeah. was there. Yeah, it's really, it's, I actually was on an episode of Teen Mom. I didn't know it. I was, this is such a funny story. But Macy was there with her whole camera crew and I just shook her hand. I said, thank you so much for, you know, for advocating. And I didn't really think anything of it. And then a couple months later, one of my clients emailed me. She goes, Martha, you were on Teen Mom. I'm like, no, I wasn't. And I found the episode. <laughs> I was actually on Teen Mom. But that was so funny. That's hilarious. I remember seeing that screenshot too. <laughs> it's great, you know? Yeah, it was cool. So fun. So what, you know, out of all the things that we have talked about today, what would be one thing that you want people with lean PCOS to take away from this episode? I think the biggest thing I would say is that, you know, we hear you. We know that it's not an easy diagnosis for you. Keep looking for the right healthcare provider. I know it's a lot easier said than done and kind of it's, I guess it's not fair to say that to some people because it's not so easy to, to find a healthcare provider, but, but, but we know that it's real and that your symptoms can be very difficult. You can definitely do a lot from a nutrition and lifestyle standpoint to help improve your symptoms. It's not all about weight loss by any means. There are many things you can do, whether it's movement, stress, sleep, uh, healthy weight eating that to improve your symptoms and get support online. There are some great there's some great support groups and, you know, follow practitioners like Melissa or myself who give evidence-based information and just hang out with people online who support you. If you're following people and they're bringing you down with all these crazy restrictions, unfollow them. Just find people who, who get you and support you. And you could, there's a lot that you can do. Yeah. I think there's sort of this misconception that PCOS dietitians don't like each other or like don't talk. And it's so not true. I would so much rather share evidence-based information from people I can trust with my audience if I feel like they're also going to benefit from it. Um, you know, and we also sort of refer among each other and talk about difficult cases together. And I think it's, it's really helpful to have that. We are mostly a very nice bunch. <laughs> <laughs> mostly. <laughs> 
So why don't you tell the audience where they can find you and what ways there are to work with you? I mainly hang out on Instagram. It's funny. I swore I would never go on Instagram about four years ago. I'm like, I'm never going to get on that. But now I'm there all the time. I am the PCOS dietitian with periods in between the PCOS dietitian because there's many of us. I have lots of good IGTV videos on my Instagram page, like really in-depth videos about insulin resistance and all that. So spend a little time there on my page and check it out. Then I also have my website, MarthaMcKidrickNutrition.com. And I have a whole PCOS blog there. So just go on there. You'll find lots of articles, uh, evidence-based practical tips. I have a, an online course. Uh, it's a seven-week uh, course called the PCOS Nutrition and Lifestyle Blueprint, where I take a deep dive into helping you manage your PCOS. I am newly launching a course on how to prevent diabetes and pre-diabetes. It's a mini course that will launch. It'll be ready by January, 2022. And you can work with me individually for personal coaching if you live in, in the United States. And you can contact me either through uh, on Instagram or go to my website, the contact page. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for being here, Martha. And thank you to our audience for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours. See you next week. Thanks. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced.